this is Swordplay. Alex, this last weekend was Earth Day. How'd you celebrate? Uh, Why well, celebrate Earth Day every day by never recycling and by trying to raise the temperature of our Earth because under miles of ice in Antarctica is perfectly preserved land. And I want to see that land. So free Antarctica. <laughs> Two words for you, my friend. Burnt styrofoam. What better way of celebrating Earth Day than by burning a small hole in its ozone layer. Family uh, fun. That's right. Uh, anyway, this is Swordplay. Uh, we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ. And I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. Well, Nick, what are we diving into today? On this episode of Swordplay, Second Peter chapter 3. Awesome. It, it's a... Uh, it's one of those chapters which um, there's a lot going on, and it can be somewhat uh, perplexing, confusing, but hopefully we'll be able to provide some clarity to uh, some of this. So, I feel like every chapter in Second Peter has been perplexing. <laughs> Thanks, Peter, for that. And, and Paul. <laughs> yeah, Paul wrote stuff that's hard to understand. But anyway. Exactly. That's the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> If you've not yet read it, we want to encourage you, listener, to hit pause, go grab your Bible, open up to 2 Peter chapter 3, read the chapter, read it again, read the whole book, and, and get it in your mind before uh, coming back and hitting play and listening to the things that we're going to say about 2 Peter chapter 3. Good advice, Nick. Now, as we get into chapter 3, it says in the uh, first verse of chapter 3 that this is the second letter that Peter is writing to you. So, Nick, what is the previous letter that Peter refers to? Is that a simple question, or is it more complex? I think it's pretty simple. First Peter. He's obviously referring to First Peter. <laughs> um, and that's, that's the majority view among commentators, but there are others who say something else, right? Right. And so maybe I take a minority position here. Uh, I might perhaps lean more towards the idea that Peter wrote another letter to this audience, and it's not First Peter, it's just a letter that we don't have. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not having letters that were written by Holy Spirit-inspired apostles and prophets of the New Testament. Um, I think that what we do have is sufficient for what we need, but uh, I, I think that, for example, Paul wrote a letter to Laodicea, and when he wrote to the Colossians, he told him at the end of that letter, hey, send this letter to Laodicea. For Laodicea, I'm going to have them send their letter to you and uh, switch letters, exchange them, read them. So I don't think Laodicea would have been less inspired than, Coloss than the letter to Colossae, um, but it probably would have been very similar in content. And so it's okay that we don't have that letter. Maybe we'll find a few copies in the future. Who knows? So I'm going to say maybe there's a lost letter of Peter out there. That would be great to find one day. Maybe we will find it one day. Um, but the reason I would lean that way is because he's saying all of the things that he's talked about in Second Peter, it's to stir their mind up by way of reminder. And so all of the content of First Peter I see as being a little bit different than the aim and the context and the content of First Peter. So that's why I lean towards another letter. But neither here nor there uh, won't cost you your salvation if you get it wrong. <laughs> well, and well, and you know you're right that Paul. There were obviously letters that he wrote that got lost in the mail, but um, where I stand with those is those were not inspired. Like if there was a 1.5 Peter, um, I suppose that like those lost letters of Paul, it was Paul at his best, but I take the position they're not Holy Spirit inspired, otherwise we would have them today. But um, So you believe that if there is an inspired letter, then we have it. And if there are other letters lost, then they're not inspired. Right. And okay. and and so and you mentioned about how Peter, you know, he's reminding the brethren of stuff he wrote in that other epistle. If it was first Peter, I make the connection to uh, chapter one of first Peter, verse thirteen, where he talks about preparing your minds for action. And then here in 3 verse 1, he says, I'm stirring up uh, your sincere mind by way of reminder. So that was Peter's aim, was the reader's mind. Um, also, he talks about Jesus is coming back in, in that verse as well. Um, 
1 Peter 1, verse 13. Um, yeah, talking about the, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sure. And so here he is talking about it again, just giving more of an expanded view in chapter 3. But um, at well, any rate... I think that's fair. So there you have it. Differing opinions. Take it as you will. <laughs> there we go. Um, so verse 2, he talks about uh, predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. Uh, Alex, does Peter have any specific word or prediction or commandment in mind when he's writing that? You know, it's hard to say for sure with absolute clarity. My best guess would be that this is connected to ideas that he already introduced in chapter 1. So chapter 1, verse 4, he mentions uh, precious and magnificent promises uh, so that we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You go to chapter um, 1, verse 19, where it says, we have that prophetic word made more sure in reference to the uh, transfiguration event. So there's something about the transfiguration that ties into the prophetic word, that ties into the magnificent promises. And um, this is in contrast to the promise of chapter 2, verse 19, where the false teachers with their sexual immorality and their um, licentiousness, sensuality, they promise the people that they're deceiving freedom. Um, but really it's not. It's, it's being deceived to a corrupt nature as opposed to the promise that we have of being transformed into a divine nature. So I think um, Peter is pulling in the Old and New Testament comprehensive promise to be transformed into the likeness of Christ first inwardly, then outwardly with our bodily resurrection, and then uh, just bringing in the whole scope of our salvation in Christ through that. So that that's my take on it. What about you, Nick? No, that makes sense. Um, and I might just tighten the focus down a bit more on the um, Old Testament prophets making their predictions being... I mean, the Old Testament prophets, they talk about the day of the Lord. They talk about... Um, some would interpret that as the end of time. Sure. And so it's if he's reminding them that they should remember those predictions, and then he's going to write about this, right? He's going to write about the day of the Lord, day of judgment, day of eternity, all that. So it could be that, and then the apostolic command could be, uh, on the one hand, could be love one another. That's a very common refrain from the apostles. On the other hand, it just could be um, that commandment, singular, summing up the total of apostolic teaching. And, sure. And so just remember all of their teaching. So a couple different options there as far as what exactly Peter is discussing. <clears throat> I think it even says in Jude, verse 17, uh, remember the words spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying, in the last time, there'll be mockers following their own ungodly lust. So it might right. be a connection to that as well. Right. Well, Nick, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, it does introduce this idea of the last days. Uh, what last days uh, would Peter be talking about? That's well, a common phrase that is found throughout all the Bible. Is one that the apostolic college used often, um, making reference to the times in which they lived. And so, they there was this common understanding. Paul in um, his epistles, and now Peter, they had this understanding that they were living in the last days. And so, the scoffers were already there, um, knowing this. First of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And guess what? Chapter two. Peter just written about these scoffers and all of their the ways in which they're following after their own desires and and so I think that's Peter's way of expressing this. I believe he believed it. I believe his readers uh, believed it. They were living in those last days. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it sounds like maybe there could be a couple of different contexts for last days and the reference for last days. So. Um, you mentioned chapter two, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah had a time in which you could call it their last days before God uh, smoked them off the face of the planet, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And 
all of those kinds of events where nations rise and nations fall and they have their last days eventually we'll come to the last days of the entire world and that may be what peter has in mind but it's not always uh easy to tell it might look easy but it's not always easy especially when you look back in the old testament and see that this is a motive used in their writings over and over again is that what you're saying nick yeah and uh we've talked about the book of jude um in a previous episode and he talks about remembering the predictions of the apostles of our lord jesus christ and they said in the last days uh, this is verse 18 there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions it is these who cause divisions. And he goes on, and it seems as though Jude also understood, hey, we're, we're there. We're in the last days. Sure, sure. Now, Peter does follow this up in verse 5, saying that those scoffers uh, completely overlook, it escapes their notice, that the earth was formed out of water by water, but it was all flooded. It was destroyed. Now, Nick, how in the world does somebody not notice the flood do they not know their old testament no i think they understood and um they, they probably knew about the flood and maybe argued about the flood but what is behind these um people who overlook the flood is that they thought god does not intervene in the cosmos anymore he doesn't intervene in the in the in the universe um, assuming he created everything, which was also something the false teachers apparently rejected. That's why Paul uh, Peter references that. That's one of the arguments he makes and says, look, the reason everything exists is because of the Word of God. God intervened. And then he uh, also talks about uh, the flood as well as another divine intervention. That's what Peter's doing. He's saying, look, not so fast, flood! And he's not talking about Alex, right? Um, <laughs> I think for the rest of this podcast, you should refer to me as the flood. The flood. <laughs> Back to you, the flood. Um, <clears throat> but no, uh, that's, again, I think they, they knew it, but they, for whatever reason, they failed to see how the flood crippled their own argument about God intervening in the cosmos. Does that make sense? Sure. Speaking of cosmos, though, we have, like, when we say the word cosmos, that's, there's, that's actually a Greek word. Mm -hmm. And so in verse 5, where it says, the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed. In the original language, Nick, earth there is gay, and that's uh, G-E, uh, gamma epsilon. Then world there is cosmos. So what's the difference going on here between earth and world? Uh, gay and cosmos. Well, um, for me, um, I don't see a distinction. I think it's just um, a different way, different words of talking about the same thing. And so I don't see the distinction here, but I think you do, right? Sure, sure. So I, I might be uh, making a mountain out of a molehill, but when I see these two words, I think there is a distinction going on for a specific purpose. So gay is means arable land. So we're talking about the land on earth that God said, let the earth, let the land come forth from the water, uh, Genesis 1. So world there is cosmos, and cosmos means um, the entire like creation. It's more... It's more broad in its scope. It, it includes the heavens and the earth. And uh, so what happened that was a cosmos destruction? It says the flood was a cosmos destruction. And it may even go into the way in which they viewed their cosmology in which the world worked. It was like three tier levels. There was the heavens, the earth, and under the earth. And all of it was surrounded by uh, water, and you had the firmament above the earth, and you had all that, so that might be going into to what they're saying in the way that they describe how, how thorough was the destruction of the flood. Well, it was pretty thorough. It washed everything clean. It brought everything back to page one of Genesis 1, 1, 1. So I think that there's a distinction. I think there's a distinction here um, because... I see two types of judgment in view in Second Peter. There are temporary judgments like Sodom and Gomorrah, where they are wiped off of the earth, the gay, 
but there are ultimate reset judgments which has happened once before at the flood where the entire cosmos is taken taken out of the scene and restarted and so i think uh lots of last days and judgments happen on the earth the gay the land but only one time in history has the entire cosmos been reset and that was at the flood and we're waiting for that giant reset to happen again except not by water because god said he wouldn't do it by water anymore it would this time be by fire so that's that's where i'm going with that but could be a mountain out of a molehill nice that makes sense to me. Um, not the mountain out of Moho, but the, the distinction there between the two. Um, Thus saith the flood. Thus saith the... <laughs> How about this? Um, uh, let's go to verse 7 and talk about um, what Peter says there regarding, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, that's what my English standard says, the heavens and earth that now exist but your new american standard says something a little different yeah mine says but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men so pr this present heaven <clears throat> and earth does that imply alex a past heavens and earth yes what, what saith the flood <laughs> thus saith the flood yes that's it. <laughs> That's it. All right. No, no, no. Um, I, this goes back with my last answer that this does imply a past heavens and earth. And I think this is an entire like cosmology uh, event that took place. And it was the flood. And that smaller judgments like Sodom and Gomorrah were not heaven and earth removing judgments. They were uh, microcosms of a heaven and earth judgment. So I think that there was a past heaven and earth. That was the flood that wiped that out and started it over. We're now in the present heaven and earth, and it will be wiped out by fire. However, I will admit that this language of the heaven and earth to be uh, replaced again, the present one to be destroyed and replaced again, I think that that has been used in a figurative sense in other contexts in order to describe something big happening, something like, you know, the, the fall of a nation or the destruction of a people group. So I will admit that, but uh, I guess in my, my view, I see room for both. I see room for the capitalizing of that cosmic event in order to uh, describe with great power uh, microcosm judgments, uh, but also the reality of the macro event itself having been in the past and to be in the future as well. What do you think, Nick? Uh, well, <clears throat> I hear what you're saying. I am disinclined to view it that way because um, Clarence Larkin has this book. He's the godfather of kind of the, the current premillennial um, Tim LaHaye, Left Behind stuff. He wrote a book called, get this, The Greatest Book of Dispensational Truth Ever. Man, the guy thought a lot of himself. <laughs> But in there, he, t he uses this verse right here, the heaven and earth, the present heaven and earth, um, to talk about um, what you're saying, but he backs it up even further, and he goes all the way back to creation and says that there's a, a whole separate world that existed in Genesis 1 uh, versus Genesis 2, and that there were all kinds of angelic things happening in this pre world world and um and i don't know i just that that's left a bad taste in my mouth ever since um sure and so um i'm inclined to see here that this is just peter's way of talking about um the present state of things uh and they will were and he's he's combating the um the views of of these scoffers who are scoffing and where is he When's he coming back? Everyone thinks just go on since the beginning of creation. And Peter is saying, look, we're going to have another divine intervention, just like we had at creation, just like we had with the flood. And this time, God is going to execute fiery judgment upon the whole world. Um, and and so that's that's how I see what Peter is saying here, and I hope that makes sense. 
Well, Nick, I'm disinclined to acquiesce to your request. <laughs> that means no. <laughs> we be but humble pirates. Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, <laughs> verse like seven. One? Let's. Uh, unless you want. Did you have any more to say about verse seven? Oh no, no, no. I, th- I thought we presented uh, two different views, but Great. I think we both uh, put forth. You know what? What made sense to us, and so there's there's room for for the discussion to continue. So what's the next verse that we're going to look at? Well, it's uh, verse seven. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> uh, still in verse seven, uh, but we're talking about this phrase here: the day of judgment. Um, which Peter has talked about day of judgment earlier in 2 verse 9. Um, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Um, and so, Alex, is is this the same day here that Peter's still talking about, or is it something else? And what about this phrase of keeping under punishment until that day? Right, right. Um, I think that that keeping under punishment until that day. So that harkens back to chapter 2, verse 9. And that says, uh, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So uh, part of the thing is that when people look around, they see evil in the world. They're like, what's what's the deal? Why is evil prospering? Why does evil get away with what it gets away with? Why do uh, Why is God not basically smoking people off the face of the planet like Sodom and Gomorrah? And one of the answers that we typically give them is like, well, wait until the day of judgment. You know, everything's going to be set right on the day of judgment. People will be judged according to everything that they've done in this life, both good and bad. So how are people then being kept under punishment until the day of judgment, if the day of judgment that we're speaking of here is the resurrection? And I would say that there's two things going on that keeps people under punishment until the day of judgment. The microcosm judgments like Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, spirit prison. So you go back to the story of Jesus where he tells people about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, The rich man ends up in a torturous place separated by a chasm from paradise where he can see and listen and talk to people like Father Abraham and Lazarus. Anyway, uh, people who uh, die... They're disembodied spirits. They go to Sheol or Hades. Uh, the worst of the worst angels are in Tartarus, like we read in chapter 2. But there are spirit prisons. That's the best way I can put it, is that there's, there's spirit prisons where uh, bad guys are kept until the Day of Judgment, where the major uh, reset and dishing out of justice is carried out. So that's what I think about stuff being kept reserved for fire, because that fire is the final day of judgment. There's a parallel phrase in 3 verse 10, uh, the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord, that has a rich Old Testament heritage to it. Um, And in fact, it's uh, in some cases called the day of the wrath of the Lord, like Zephaniah 1 and verse 18. And so... Uh, I think all of this, that rich old... And Peter, he's an heir to that rich prophetic history, stands upon it and uh, advances the ball in some sense. And and so I think that's... Uh, he's dipping into that well of, um, of Old Testament literature in order to utilize these phrases to communicate just kind of what you've been saying, this, this coming day where... God will judge everybody, um, and and that'll have uh, cosmological, apparently, impact as it impacts the cosmos. And but it's it's specifically God's judgment upon uh, the ungodly, and whether we want to toss in here the ungodly angels who didn't keep their places, we want to. That's that's fine too. Um, but specifically here, he's talking about these scoffers and the destruction that awaits them for the. The day of God's wrath, which will be fiery wrath. That's right. Um, so, and if we, uh, if you, if you, if you want to dip your foot into the dangerous realm of typology, you could say that all of the days of the Lord are but foreshadows, shadowing types of the antitype final day of the Lord to come. And uh, 
that's where I see room for both elements of uh, destruction now and later to come. But Nick, when you look at verse eight, this is a this is a serious question here. Yep. So it says, "Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day." Now, people have gone off on this verse like this is the you know this is the key for every interpretation of prophetic utterance within the bible you, this is this is how people come up with their specific dates for the end of the world which every every date proposed has been wrong so far but what is going on here with the lord saying saying that the, to the lord one day is like a thousand years a thousand years is like one day so here's my question the doctrine of a temporality the doctrine of timelessness that god lives outside of time is that what this verse teaches or is this verse teaching something else well i'm inclined to i mean god is timeless right he is eternal and so um yeah i'm i'm inclined to to see here when it comes to He's called the eternal God. He's called the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, he's called the everlasting God um, throughout Scripture. Romans 16, 26, Genesis 21, verse 33, Psalm 41, 13, 90, verse 2 as well. And in fact, the Psalm 90 reference, Psalm 90, verse 4, it could be what Peter is alluding to here. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So, yeah, um, God is this timeless being. He does stand outside of time. And he's also contrasted here with we temporal beings. We are bound by time. We are linear creatures and think along timelines, but God is timeless. And so, uh, yeah, I, I can get there as far as a thousand years is like a day, days like a thousand years. I don't, however... And this is kind of the preface to the question. I don't get to where these other date setters and uh, those who get all spun out on prophetic literature and, and trying to... I, that, I don't end up there. But as far as, yeah, the, the atemporality, the eternality of God, uh, by all means, yes. I'm going to throw a pebble in your shoe, Nick. Go so for it. I think that God being eternal means that he has no beginning. And he has no end. However, that does not necessarily infer or require a being who lives outside of time. Hmm. That's my take on it because uh, if being eternal does not mean being atemporal, meaning does not mean he lives outside of time. In other words, I'm not viewing this as like time is this cloud that God has created and he sticks us in the cloud and he can come into the cloud, but he can also jump out of the cloud anytime he wants um, to see everything from start to finish. I disagree with that. I don't think that God lives outside of time. I don't think that time is a substance that was created. I don't think time is a cloud in which we live and that God jumps in and out of. I disagree with all of that time nonsense. I think that God is eternal because he has no beginning and he has no end. We are not eternal because we have a beginning but we have eternal life because in Christ Jesus and through the resurrection, we will have no end. We will live forever with God. So how does God's uh, temporal eternality play into chapter 3, verse 8? And I think it's right on the money when you brought it to Psalm chapter 90, because Psalm 90 says the same thing to the Lord one day is like a thousand, a thousand like one day. But it's in the context, the whole psalm of Psalm 90 is in the context of judgment. It's in the context of the kind of judgment that Peter is talking about in right. chapter 3. So if this is referencing Psalm 90, and it's connecting to verse 9, the very next thought about the Lord's promise and his patience towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance, then I think what Peter is doing is Peter is saying that, look, God's been around for a long time. He's not going anywhere. So God's patience is not like human patience. God's view of how long is a long time is not the same as man's view of how long is a long time. So it doesn't require timelessness, but I think what it means is this. How is the Lord's patience 
uh, of one day like a thousand years. I think that's another way of saying that God does not run out of patience uh, in the same way that man does. In other words, how much patience do you have each and every day, Lord? The Lord would say, I have a thousand years worth of patience in every single day. Well, uh, what about the thousand years like one day? Uh, Lord, what do you think about waiting for a thousand years before bringing judgment? And the Lord says, I can wait for a thousand years. To me, it's like one day. I don't mind waiting at all. In other words, I, I have to frame this whole time thing in the context of God's patience and willingness for people to not perish but to repent. It brings me back to Old Testament verses like God talking to Abraham and saying, Hey, Abraham, all this land is going to be yours, but not yet. It's going to be another 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Do you see God's patience waiting there in the days of Abraham for 400 years before he brings judgment on the Amorites? I think that's an incredible amount of patience, and it has to be described in these grand terms of longevity of centuries of millennia. And tie that back into First Second Peter chapter three and the day of judgment. Uh, I think we got to bring this into the into the equation because we're talking about thousands of years that have passed, and thousands of years that may continue to pass before the reset of heaven and earth. So that's that's where I stand on that. Makes sense to me. I mean, it is, it's a simile, you know, um, as a, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. Right. So, um, and that leads nicely, and you talked about the patience of the Lord, verse 9, um, that leads nicely into verse 9, which talks about how God doesn't want any to perish. So does that mean that God will predestine people since he doesn't want anyone to perish? You know, I think if you were a Calvinist, if you were going to hit this from the predestination argument, you probably have to end up at something like the, this is the best of all possible universes. Uh, Nick, t tell me a little bit about that. That if, uh, I think it's something along the lines of, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that um, God, since he's all-knowing, of all the possible universes that he could have created, he knows that this is the best one and uh, the one that will maximize the number of people being saved. Is that on the close to being right? Yeah, that's right. And I think that that requires timelessness, which I also don't agree with. So the whole thing is rubbish. Uh, presupposition built on top of a presupposition built on top of a presupposition. So <laughs> oh, <drat. laughs> I'm disinclined to acquiesce to your request. Um, no, I don't think that this uh, can make sense without some sort of long philosophical uh, argument like the best of all possible universes. Um, so if you just look at it and you say, okay, if it's not predestination, then what's going on here? What's going on here is God knows that some will perish because people reject him, and that's their choice because they are made in his image. And since God is a free-willed being, we too are free-willed beings being able to make our own decisions because we are like him. We're like little miniature versions of him. We're made in his image and he wants us to live, but he wants to give us as much time as possible to repent so that we can have life eternal. And to me, that makes no sense under predestination. It makes no sense under Calvinism. And so this is a serious verse for, for Calvinist believers. Yeah. And, um, Rob Bell, in his book, Love Wins, he gets tied up on this verse and um, the other one in, what is it, Second Timothy, um, where he asks the provocative question, does God get what God wants, right? God wants, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all people to be saved. So does God get what God wants? And how Rob Bell answers the question is he ends up in a, I call it a conditional universalist position. Sure. Universalist in that he he says, yeah, everybody's going to be saved eventually, somehow, some way. The conditional part is if you want, all right? Uh, if you don't, then I guess you just kind of get snuffed out of existence kind of thing. But uh, yeah, that you can end up in some strange places with this, but that it does not say that um, God doesn't want anyone to perish, and so he's just going to save everybody. You're exactly right when you talk about the free will aspect of this, that all should reach repentance. And and that's what God calls us to, is he calls us to 
repentance, and we can either choose to repent or not to. And if we choose not to, we will perish. Right. That's not what God wants, right. but that's what we'll get. And take a look uh, at the basic fundamental uh thinking about God that you have to have to end up in those positions, right? If your basic fundamental thinking about God is that he always gets what he wants, then you end up with a universalism, right? Or a conditional universalism. Um, But I don't think that's true. I don't think God gets what he always wants. Um, Look at Jesus when he wails over Jerusalem and says, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. So he didn't get what he wanted. Yeah, does God the Son get what he wants when he says, take this cup from me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the, what's the other basic foundational view of how you view? If you view God as a timeless uh, entity, atemporal, then you end up in Calvinistic realms, and uh, you can uh, you know, land on the Arminian side if you want. But again, one of those big foundational things about how you view God is, is he timeless or not timeless? And what is time? And it's not easy to define what time is, let alone say that this is clear from scripture. <laughs> so <laughs> so I reject both of those foundations that God, uh, I, I stand on the position that God does not always get what he wants and that God does not live outside of time. And that that may change your definition of eternal and what it means to be eternal. But if you... Take the position that I do, that eternal just means you have no beginning and no end, and so God is unique in that aspect of eternality, um, then then it makes sense how... It'll make sense how I see it. <laughs> so. um, I made reference to it earlier. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 10, the day of the Lord, and it'll come like a thief. The heavens and earth will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up, dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Um, Yeah, let's talk about this massive destruction that's going to take place, especially regarding um, these uh, elements. Mine says heavenly bodies, but I think yours says elements uh, there in verse 10. What, What are those elements to be destroyed? Uh, the periodic table of elements, right? So, hey, Yahtzee. Gold, silver, iron, carbon, uh, all of those, right? Isn't that what they're talking about? Cadmium? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boron, is that one? I feel like I just made that up. It might be an element. So, elements in the original language is stoicheon. Uh, stoicheon is used in... Uh, a handful of verses in the New Testament, but here's a, a basic definition. It means elemental spirits, heavenly bodies, supernatural powers. Um, it can also be used in uh, some context to even just mean like the elementary principles uh, or basics of something. And you probably have that use of it in the book of Hebrews. But there is this largely supernatural, spiritual idea wrapped up with stoicheon. In other words, I mean, to me, I think you're talking about you're talking about the stars. You're talking about the heavenly hosts, the bodies that um, are described in the heavenly realms. So um, this is where you get star-like language in the book of Revelation about Jesus holding the seven stars in his right hand and stars representing angels, these supernatural heavenly host angelic beings. So uh, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements, the stoicheon, will be destroyed with intense heat, the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things would be destroyed in this way, uh, what kind of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It says destroyed again in verse 12, because which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements, their stoicheon again, will melt with intense heat. So destroyed for these three times, 10, 11, and 12, is luo, which just means to be loosed. And so I think we have a parallel to what we saw in chapter 2, verse uh, 12 and 13, about the um, the unreasoning creatures uh, being destroyed. But destroyed in that context was phthora, which is a breakdown in organic matter. Here, destroy is luo, which means to be loosed. So... Um, do we have two separate ideas being going on here? Possible. Do we have two of the same ideas going on described in different ways? That's what I say. I say they're the 
two separate ways of describing the same thing. You're going to have these uh, rebellious heavenly beings along with rebellious earthly beings destroyed, loosed by fire so that they will decompose, so that they will fathora away into nothingness and that this is how God's going to carry it out. He's going to carry it out through fire. What do you say, Nick? Yeah, again... Um, Disinclined to acquiesce to your request. <laughs> well, um, the only issue is uh, regarding the angels. and I, I can see how you get there. Angels, spirits, and all that. Um, it just doesn't fit the immediate context for me. Um, it is... Uh, it's it's a minority position, um, which is fine. Doesn't you don't have to agree with everybody, but um, for me, it doesn't fit the immediate context. Um, there is the sense in which heavenly bodies or the elements are uh, sun, moon, stars. Um, that certainly a possibility, but elements seems to refer to the stuff that we're made out of, and. Uh, mine says dissolved, not destroyed, and I think that's uh, right. I, I understand the loosed um, idea. I like dissolved. But, but dissolved, I mean, it literally means that they're going to be smashed to bits. Everything in this text indicates that the physical world as we know it is going to be obliterated and dissolved. Um, I think this is Peter echoing in different language what Jesus talks about when he says heaven and earth will disappear or will pass away, but disappear. Just, just It's going out of business, in other words. So um, for me, that that's um, essentially what's what's going on here with this burned up and dissolved is, yeah, it's, it's, it's going away. The heavens and earth are going away. So I think I can, uh, I can, I can get with you there. The heavens and earth are going away. And what does that look like? What context? Uh, boy, we're just going to have to keep exploring that because there's all kinds of stuff going on here. We do know it'll happen on the day of the Lord. And we also know, verse 12, that we can hasten that day. The coming of the day of God is how it's put there in verse 12. So, Alex, how do we do that? How do we hasten the day of the Lord, the day of God? Uh, well, if you... Take a thousand years as a day, and a day is mm -hmm. a thousand years. Then I'm with you so far. You should be able to insert that into the Mayan calendar in uh -huh. order to come up with an acceptable date before God. And if God likes it and he says, yeah, I like that date, then he'll come on that day, and he will acquiesce to our request, and that's how we hasten the day of the Lord. Wow. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I just made that up. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should have scripted it. I should have wrote it down. We, uh, but we, we, we can hasten. I mean, Peter wouldn't say we could do it if we couldn't. Right. So how do um, we do it? I, for one, I think it's by having an attitude of come Lord Jesus, which is a typical prayer, the Maranatha prayer that you, Paul prays it, John prays it. Um, Jesus invites us to pray your kingdom come. And so... Um. Yeah. Does is does God in His sovereignty know exactly when He's going to come? Yes. But do we, as humans, are we able to influence that? Yes. And so, <laughs> divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Once again, I believe they're held in perfect tension. Does that make sense? I think it makes perfect sense, Nick. When you go back to Jesus's uh, prophecies in, in uh, the Olivet discourse. He talks about, hey, pray that the day does not come in winter, because if it's in winter, it'll be real hard on pregnant and nursing women uh, when you have to flee Jerusalem and go to the hills. So backing up, all of that, I believe, is Jesus's forewarning about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So Jesus says it's coming. However, if you pray you can affect the timing in which God carries this out. You can pray that it does not happen in wintertime. So there you have it, Nick. Exactly as you said, God has his timeline, but he is open to our involvement and our prayer request and how that timeline exactly comes about. So I think we can. We can hasten the day of the Lord. We can, we can pray 
together to affect the timing of when God comes back, when all of this gets wrapped up. And uh, I, I say it often, especially after I hear about something, you know, incredibly evil on the news. It just turns my stomach. I pray, Jesus, come back now. I know you want more to be saved. I know you don't want any to perish, but it's it's that tension, that dichotomy. I'm glad you didn't come back before I was saved, but I want you to come back now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you, how, I mean, is that, is that? I'm, no, I'm with you 100%. I mean, that was a good connection there with Jesus and praying that it, um, that uh, his coming not be in winter because it'd be hard on the, pregnant ladies so i mean i stick um, with prayer in this regard but i have heard some people say that uh, uh this is even referring to uh evangelism you need to get out there and evangelize because the more we evangelize the faster jesus will come back and sometimes that's even in a post-millennial context that like right. if we get the world good enough for jesus to return then he'll usher in the new kingdom and good will become better um but i have heard it still stated in that way from non-post-millennial believers who just say, yeah, God's waiting for a certain number of people to be saved, and when we hit that number, he'll come back. So I don't know if, well, it, if it applies to the evangelism context, but it is, it is, it would be an interesting motivator for evangelism, wouldn't it? It would. There's also, and as you were talking, I made this uh, connection um, in Revelation chapter 6, where the people that are under the altar, the souls of the people under the altar, those who've been martyred, cry out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell? Then they were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Martyrdom. Wow. Martyrdom. Is that another way in which we can hasten the coming of the, of the day of God? It Don't. sounds like it. Don't talk about that, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Gracious. Oh, um, man. We, let's talk about this word found um, here in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent, be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Yeah, what is that? It's, well, it's the same word back in verse 10 about the works uh, that are done on it will be exposed, literally will be found um, man, <laughs> what in the world does that mean? Uh, that's a good question, Nick. It just, I mean, it means discovered, right? From the original mm -hmm. language, hurisco means to be discovered. Um, if you tie it back into verse 10, you got to think Peter's making a connection here. He uses it in verse 10 about the earth and all its works being discovered. Mine says burned up, but I mean, it's, it's hurisco, it's discovered. Verse 14 you be diligent to be found in him, spotless, uh, to be discovered by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Um, I got to think that this has to do with the works that we do as God's people on planet Earth right now before it's burned up. All of those works, both good and bad, are going to be revealed, uncovered, mm -hmm. discovered, and we will be judged according to those works. Um, Jesus says everyone will be re resurrected from the dead. And those who did good to resurrection of life, and those who did the bad deeds to a resurrection of death. So it, I think it's referring to the discovery of every good and bad thing, the, the judgment, the examination of every good and bad thing ever done on this planet. And I think that's fair. I did find this reference from, and there's, look, there's volumes have been written about what this means and, and um, all the various manuscripts and translations, things like that. But Second Clement 16, verse 3, where Clement seems to be referencing this particular passage here in verse 10, he says, But you know that the day of judgment comes even now as a burning oven, and the powers of the heavens shall melt, and all the earth as lead melting in the fire, and they shall appear, and then shall appear the secret and open works of men. So I think that's right on the money with that um, day of judgment, and then the ungodly are, are exposed. They're found out. All right. Let's talk a minute about Peter and Paul's common audience, just briefly in verse 15, because um, Peter writes, to, and he assumes that these brothers that he loves are familiar with Paul's writing. Um, any idea who that common audience is? 
Well, okay, he says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our brother, beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. So my guess is going to be based off of the content of Second Peter and where the content overlaps with Paul's epistles. And I came up with three possibilities. I came up with Romans, I came up with Galatians, and I came up with Colossians. Now, Galatians is an interesting choice because First Peter, if you're right, and his previous letter to this audience was First Peter, and it says in First Peter at the beginning that uh, to all these dispersed uh, believers, one of the dispersed areas was Galatia, so that would connect First Peter also with the Galatian church as uh, as we see Paul talking to the Galatian church. Now, Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, mentions stoicheion. He mentions these elemental spirits, these heavenly bodies, these supernatural powers, and Paul says, hey, you were enslaved to those things, so don't go back to those things. Don't go back to systems of enslavement. So I think Galatians is the best guess. My second best guess would be Romans because that's where you have the promise given to Abraham to be made like the stars and uh, Peter's uh, emphasis of that in chapter 1, of Second Peter chapter 1. So I would say either Galatians or Romans, but maybe Colossians too because it mentions the Stoicheion, and um, that's, that's my guess. What do you guess, Nick? Yeah, Galatians is good. Uh, there's also, um, there was also apparently in the early church forming this idea that Paul's writings were scripture and that his writings were probably, um, even at this early date, they were well known and were kind of making the rounds. Paul, uh, Peter describes Paul's writing as uh, scripture there at the end of verse 16, talking about how these um, are these ignorant, unstable brethren twist the scriptures to their own destruction as they do the other scripture. They they twist Paul's writing as they do the other scripture. Do you think so, that's intentional, Nick? Do you think that they uh, twist those scriptures intentionally? <clears throat> some do. Okay. I I think there's there's some that that knowingly do that in order to advance their cause. Um, uh, but to say that all of them do, I. I don't think we can make a general statement like that. Does it still count as twisting scripture if it's unintentional? <laughs> Do you still end up in error? Sure. Okay. Um, I think that's that's pro. And I know we're racing through here, but <laughs> it brings us to our tough text, tough verse text. seventeen. <laughs> Verse 17 is our tough text. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Alex, can a Christian fall away? Can they fall from grace based on this text here? Again, I do not stand on the foundation of predestination or timelessness, so I can say with comfort and um, with just reading the text saying that, yes, they can fall away, they can be carried away, they can lose their salvation. That is their choice, and that is what is taught here, I think, in Second Peter verses 3, 17. You can find that same thing in other verses, um, like in Romans and in Galatians. So just sticking with Second Peter chapter 3, though, I think that you can fall away. However, can you... If you fall away, let's say you get carried off into error by these unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Nick, are you out of luck, or can you come back? While it is a tragic truth that Christians can drift away, the wonderful and glorious truth, on the other hand, is that yes, there is a pathway back, and it's actually uh, Peter himself who gives us the way back gives it to us by way of Simon, the former magician, um, back in Acts chapter 8, verses 20 to 24, uh, when Simon tries to buy the uh, miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter tells him, hey, get that money out of here. Um, that is not in keeping with God's will. 
Verse 22 says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Mm. And so Simon says, hey, pray for me too. Right. So the, the road back is repentance and prayer to God, uh, seeking his forgiveness. And, and, and the thing is, our God is of such a nature that he rejoices when sinners come back, and he delights in forgiving us. So, yeah, there is a road back. And what about Peter's own story himself? Denied the Lord three times and still came back. Yahtzee. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Um, so let's kind of wind down here uh, with some modern application. What 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 can we carry across the bridge, Alex? Uh, modern application, I would say is that we need to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's how Peter wraps it up. That's what he says our focus needs to be on. It it ties back into what he says in verse 11. If everything's going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And I think this is wrapping it full circle back to chapter 1, saying, hey, remember those virtues I talked about? Remember when I talked about... You're building up your faith, supplying moral excellence, and then knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. You need these qualities, but they're qualities that need to be exercised. So just like God gave you muscles that won't get bigger or stronger unless you work them out, God too, through his, uh, what does it say, through his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So through this knowledge, through these precious and magnificent promises, Start there and start working out these exercises, which means you need to exercise these things towards one another and in your life so that you are found inwardly to be like Christ Jesus so that you will receive an outward body like his as well. That's what I take away from it, Nick. Uh, So I want to say two things. One, uh, there may be a temptation on the one hand to hear us talk about how everything's going to be destroyed with fire. So, hey, all the all the income free, let's just eat, drink, and destroy the planet because tomorrow we die. Kind of where we started off uh, with the Earth Day stuff. <laughs> that was a joke, by the way, all right? We don't want to ha- have to read any mean tweets on the air. But No hate mail. That's right. On the <laughs> other hand, though, this is my father's world, and he created it, and yes, it's going to go out of business one day, but we ought to be good stewards of the planet. I'm not saying that we should use pine cones for toilet paper or anything like that, but <laughs> we should make good use of the blessings of this planet. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing I want to say regarding um, our ethics, and, and I think this is building a little bit or maybe coming alongside what you said there in your comments, Um so many people, especially today, they get caught up in the hype of the end of time, and they go out and they buy books by the millions uh, concerning the end of time. There will always be questions about the end of all things, but God's answer for God's people in both First and Second Peter is, I'm coming back. Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven. You need to live holy, self-controlled, sober lives in expectation and anticipation of that final coming. Um, Peter, he literally says there, and even talk about this in verse 11, he literally says things are already being destroyed. It's already going out of business. Um, Everything's winding down. Like our physical bodies, the physical universe is going out of business. Live accordingly. Live accordingly as God's holy and beloved people. That's right, Nick, and I think that applies both to the end of the world and the end of your nation. Is your country having troubled times? Is your Mm. country on the decline, on the fall? Well, the answer is the same as if Jesus were coming back next week. You need to make sure that your life stands out from those in society around you. So I appreciate your thoughts, Nick. I thought that this was a, a serious... A uh, serious set of questions and issues, but I feel like we, we did a good job of making it a little more lighthearted. Let's pat ourselves on the back, shall we? Hey, we did it. Yay, me. <laughs> hey, uh, iTunes and Google Play, Sword Play, search it and download all the episodes to your particular device. 
Also go to the website, swordplay.cast.rocks. S-W-O-R-D-P-L-A-Y dot cast, C-A-S-T dot rocks, R-O-C-K-S. Listen to us on the internet, iTunes, Google Play. Send us an email at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. If you send us a question, we'll read it on the air, we'll answer it, and you will become famous. So share the podcast, repost it on your social media. And this has been another episode of Sword Play. Sword Play.